So tonight, I've titled the message, Conquer or Be Conquered. There's a lot of cutting away of the flesh in a very physical way in this chapter. But I want to contrast that with the cutting away of the flesh of our heart, of the spiritual flesh. And look at the understanding and the acknowledgement that we need to conquer the flesh or it will conquer us. So we're going to be in Joshua chapter 5. If you're using the, the Bibles that we've been giving out here at the church over the past couple of years, if you're using one of the older ones, it's on page 155. Sorry, it's on page 197 for one of the older ones. And the newer Bibles, it's page 155. I'll be going through in the New King James if you want to follow along. That's great. So we've reached a point where they've crossed the river. They've set up the stones. Now, human sense, human common sense, would say at this point, they should just go right up against the enemy. They should try to take Jericho. They should conquer the enemy that is terrified before them. If you remember back in chapter 2, Rahab would talk about how the kings and how the people, that their hearts had melted before them, that they were already in a place of panic-stricken fear, and now all of a sudden they've seen these two to three million people walk across dry ground, literally on their doorstep. And that melting of that heart of the hearts are only increasing. But we need to understand that the events that took place in chapter five, they lasted about 10 days. And then the people march around the city of Jericho in the next chapter for six days. So that's 16 days roughly. That's just over two weeks before the Lord gives them their first victory. They're in the promised land, and they have to wait about two weeks before they experience, before they taste victory. And I really believe because the Lord has to prepare them for victory before they can step into victory. They must be prepared so that they can be trusted. And there are going to be a few different steps of preparation that we're going to look at tonight. There's going to be a, a renewal of a covenant. There's going to be remembering the Passover. And there's going to be a, a, a confirmation or, again, a reminder of the Lord's presence. And so we're going to look at these couple of these three different components as the people are prepared. So chapter 5, verse 1. So it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan... And all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over that their heart melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. Melting hearts is a very good thing if they melt to repentance. Now I can look at my wife and her beauty could melt my heart. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a fear. We're talking about an awestruck, what are we going to do moment. Their hearts were melted. Sometimes our hearts melt before God, but then they solidify to something that is much harder than before. Sometimes we have these moments, these experiences, these times where we feel very vulnerable. We feel very exposed. We feel like we're melting before the Lord. And then just as quick as that melting sensation came on, we quickly turn it off and our hearts become that much more cold and hard, harder than it was before. When our spiritual enemies see that we are trusting in God and that we are willing to step out in faith, even when it seems crazy, they instantly lose confidence in their battle against us. 
We may forget at times, but our enemies, our spiritual enemies, will always remember that if God is for us, then who can be against us? If God is for you, who can be against you? And you need to be reminded at times that God is with you. God is for you. They they know that when they are really trusting in God, their defeat is assured. Their defeat is inevitable. After triumphantly crossing over the Jordan River, the nation had to pause at Gilgal while the men, the fighting men, submitted themselves to painful surgery. Before attacking the enemy, God called upon his people. And we're going to see here in the next few verses what he asked them to do. He's going to ask the entire army to basically make themselves useless, to physically handicap themselves. And before a believer is fit to enter into combat with his spiritual enemies, he needs to use the knife of self-examination, which is the word of God in living power upon our hearts and our lives. We need to take the word, the word that is powerful enough to separate joint and marrow, bone and marrow, to come in into our lives and to reveal that which needs to be cut out. So what did God actually command his people to do? Verses 2 through 7 says this. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives for yourself and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of foreskins. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. So let's stop real quick there. Make flint knives. These, this isn't stainless steel. This isn't titanium. This isn't going to be a clean cutting instrument. This is a rock. This is a rock with a sharpened edge on it. And Joshua has been asked to circumcise the men. It's the second time. Well, we're going to understand what that means the second time in a minute. But imagine 600,000 to 650,000 men that are now having to be circumcised, grown men, with a sharpened piece of stone. Now, automatically, all the guys listening, just we get very uncomfortable, very uneasy, going, let's not talk about that, let's move on. I get it why it's called the Hill of Foreskins. You don't need to go there. We understand. But understand what the Lord is asking. The Lord is telling Joshua, this great and mighty military leader, handicap your army, hamstring yourselves, make yourselves completely useless. I get a bad cut on the leg. Or the the infamous dad flu or dad cold, and I'm out for the count for a couple of days. I can't imagine a, a grown man, a fighting man, a soldier having to experience this type of physical pain and then kind of being out for the count for a few days. It doesn't make sense. But see, it's not supposed to make sense. Because if it made sense, humanistically, we could then run with it. We can justify it. We can, as we understand it, we can just respond to it. It doesn't, it's not supposed to make sense. It's supposed to take faith. For 40 years, he faithfully sustained them through the promised land or through the wilderness. He brought them to the edge of the promised land. He defeated the enemies of the east. He dried up the rivers of the Jordan. They walked across on dry ground. He's been faithful to this entire generation. 
So our faith must maintain and must continue knowing that he will be with us every step of the way. Israel is a covenant nation. This covenant nation is a privilege that God has given to no one else but Israel. God gave the covenant to Abraham when he called him out of Ur of the Chaldees. And he sealed that covenant with a sacrifice. God gave circumcision as the sign of the covenant to Abraham and his descendants. Through this ritual, the Jews became a marked people because they belonged to the true and living God. This meant that they were, in a sense, under obligation to obey him. He had chosen them. They had accepted that choice by circumcising themselves. Thus, they were not in servitude, but they were in service to him. The mark of the covenant reminded them that their bodies belonged to the Lord and they were not to be used for sinful purposes. Israel was surrounded by nations that worshipped idols and included in the worship rituals that were sensual and very degrading. And the mark of the covenant reminded the Jews that they were a special people, a separated people, a holy nation, and that they were to maintain purity in their marriages, in their society, and in the worship of God. Now, the Jews had not practiced circumcision during the years wandering in the wilderness. We'll talk about that a little bit more down the road. 38 years before at Kadesh Barnea, they had refused to believe God and enter into the land. God disciplined the people by making them wander in the wilderness until the entire older generation had died off, except Caleb and Joshua. During that time, God had kind of suspended his covenant relationship with Israel and didn't require the mark of circumcision. He performed wonders for them. He met their every need, even though temporarily they were not his covenant chosen people. The new generation was now in their inheritance. However, it was important that they renew their covenant with, their, with the Lord, with the relationship with the Lord. If during their wilderness journey, Israel was tempted to sin, how much more would they be tempted now that they were living in the land of promise? If they were tempted to sin before they had received their reward, now that they had been given it, how much more likely are they going to be sinning? They would be surrounded by pagan people with immoral religious practices, and they would be tempted to compromise with their enemies. This physical operation on the body was meant to be a symbol of spiritual operation in the heart. Deuteronomy 10.16 says this, Therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. No amount of external surgery can change the inner man, can change the inner person. We have such medical advancements today that I can walk into an operating room looking like this and walk out looking like someone completely different. But yet my heart and the inside of who I am is still the same. So we have to circumcise our heart. What does that mean? That means we have to cut away the flesh, not the physical flesh of our heart, but we have to cut away the, the, the spiritual flesh that has encaptured or has encaged our heart. So that it can be wholly and fully given over to the Lord once again. It's when we repent and when we turn to God for help that we can change our hearts. 
And that will help make us love him and obey him more. Over the years, though, the Jews came to trust in the external mark of the covenant and not the God of the covenant. They were looking at their physical appearances and trusting that that was good enough. That how I looked on the outside was good enough to justify me on the inside. Instead of looking to the Lord and asking the Lord, Lord, am I still who you want me to be? Am I still living how you want me to live? They thought as long as they were God's covenant people, they could just get by and live as they pleased. Let me finish up four through seven. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised. But all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people, were, till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers, that he would give us a land flowing with milk and honey. Then Joshua circumcised their sons, whom he raised, the Lord raised up in their place, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So what's the reason behind it? Well, all the men that had come out of Egypt, they were already circumcised. They had all died off in the wilderness, and a new generation had, had risen up, and they had not been circumcised. And so they went through the right, through the, the experience of circumcision, so that they could be reminded that they are a chosen, a special, a set-apart people. As long as they were God's people, they could live how they wanted to. Wanted to. That's what they did for 38 years. But now Joshua's saying, uh uh, you have to stop talking the talk, and now it's time to walk the walk. Now it's time to live it out. Now it's time to actually do something with what we've been saying. So the circumcision takes place. Verse 8. So it was when they had finished circumcising all the people that they stayed in their places. In the camp until they were healed. No, duh. I don't think after circumcision anyone's getting ready to go run off to battle, go play some soccer, go run around and play tag. Everyone's going to want to sit there and say, don't touch me, don't breathe on me, don't move, just leave me alone. They need time to heal. There needs to be a physical healing, but also there needs to be a spiritual awareness of what's going on. Israel was camped in enemy territory just a few short miles from Jericho. And now they were going to temporarily disable every male in the nation, every soldier in the army, like I've already said, 600 to 650,000 men. That is a large, large force that has now become incapacitated. What a golden opportunity for the enemy to attack and to wipe them out. And it took faith for Joshua and the people to obey the Lord. But their obedience to the law was the complete secret to their success. By obeying the word of the Lord, they were successful. Doesn't always make sense what he tells us to do, does it? But if we're obedient to him, we find success. 
And I'm sure you can look at your life and, find, and look at the times where your disobedience led to times of being very unsuccessful. Conversely, times where you were obedient, even though it didn't make sense, you were incredibly successful because it had nothing to do with you. It had everything to do with the Lord. He had already laid out the plan. Your job was just to walk it out. In their weakness, they were made strong. And through faith and patience, they inherited the promises. Shortly after Israel departed from Egypt, God tested them at Meribah. And they failed that test. You can look at that over in Exodus 17. We won't go there tonight. And now shortly after entering the promised land, God is testing them by commanding the men to be circumcised. And guess what? They're going to pass this test. They're going to do it. The people had faith to obey God, and this act gave evidence that they would obey his orders as they march through the land. If they didn't start off with obedience, they would not be obedient through the entire campaign of the promised land. They had to start with obedience. After we've experienced an exciting victory of faith, God will often allow or permit testing to take place. Abraham arrived in the promised land and was immediately confronted with a famine. Elijah, he triumphed over Baal, and then he was threatened with death. After his baptism in the Jordan River, the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan himself. As soon as we experience times of blessing, times of victory, there's usually times of testing to say, okay, are you going to glory in the victory or are you going to glory in the Lord? Are you going to take credit for the victory or are you going to give him all the credit? Are you going to start looking to flesh or are you going to continue to live in the spirit? Since great victories can lead to great pride, God allows us to be tested in order to remind us that we have to depend on him. It has nothing to do with my abilities. It has nothing to do with what I can or cannot do. It has everything to do with what he wants to do in and through me. So they had to be circumcised. Verse 9. Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day. So the, he- the word Gilgal is similar to the word, the Hebrew word Galal, which means to roll. But what was the reproach of Egypt? It says I've rolled away the reproach. Of Egypt. What was that reproach? Well, some kind of suggest that it means that the reproach was for them being slaves in Egypt. But it wasn't Israel's fault that the new Pharaoh turned against them. The Jews were in Egypt because God had sent them there, not because they were disobedient. God called Israel to a place where they saw themselves as they were in Him. By faith, they could see themselves as obedient, trusting people, and to stop seeing themselves as they were in their slavery and bondage. Another thought about the reproach refers to the ridicule of the enemies that Israel faced when they failed to trust God at Kadesh Barnea and enter the promised land. When Aaron made the golden calf at Mount Sinai and the people broke God's law, God threatened to destroy them and make a new nation from Moses. But Moses argued that God would lose glory if he did that because the Egyptians would only say that God delivered them in order to kill them. At Kadesh Barnea, Moses used the same appeal when God said he would destroy Israel. 
Moses didn't want the Egyptians to spread the word that the God of Israel couldn't finish what he had started. Israel's sin at Kadesh Barnea was a reproach to them. But now it was all in the past. The nation of Israel was in the promised land. They had captured the territory east of the Jordan and their people were already occupying that. They had crossed the river Jordan, the Jordan River, and were ready for conquest. No matter what the Egyptians and the other nations had said about Israel because of their sin at Kadesh Barnea, that reproach was now completely gone. It was completely removed. Each man bore on his body the mark that reminded him that he belonged to God, that he was a son of the covenant, and the land was his to conquer and to possess. Now, back in Exodus chapter 12, we kind of get the qualifications of the Passover. And no male could participate in the annual feast of the Passover unless he had been circumcised. Unless he was a true son of the covenant. We're going to talk a little bit more about the Passover later. But this was a big aspect of the Jews during the times of the wilderness. They couldn't actively partake in Passover if they weren't circumcised. And here, 600,000, 650,000 men are circumcised. So that means for their life, up until that point, they weren't able to partake in the Passover. Just as the Jewish men at Gilgal had to submit to God's will, so believers today, we must yield to the Spirit and allow Him to make true in our experience what God says in His Word. Now, as much as there was a physical removal of flesh with these men, we have a spiritual removal of flesh that we need to look at as well. In Colossians 3, 5-7, we read this. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. The sins mentioned here are all, are, are all kind of those sins that we're all like, yeah, put those things away. Fornication, of course we need to put that away. Uncleanness also refers to sexual sin. Evil desires, covetousness, yes, idolatry. Yeah, we don't want any of those to be part of us. The child of God is to, to deal very unsparingly with any tendency towards these things. If we have any desire of, towards fornication, obviously we need to root that out. We need to get rid of it. We're to recognize ourselves dead unto sin and alive unto Christ through Jesus our Lord. But there are other sins which we're not so readily easy or readily desiring to get rid of. Some sins are almost a little bit more agreeable. Let's continue reading in Colossians verses 8 through 11. But now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, Filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. So let's look at that list real quick. 
Anger. Part of my testimony involves anger. I had, a, I had a lot of anger that I dealt with in my life. A lot of internal anger. Sometimes it came out in, in not nice ways, but there was a lot of internal anger, and the Lord had to deal with me with that. When I was 17, I'll never forget the time that He did. We are to put anger off. Wrath, it's almost it's the actions of anger. Malice and blasphemy, filthy language out of our mouth. Are we saying things? Is what's coming out of our mouth sounding just like the world? Do not lie to one another, since you've put off the old man with his deeds. See, I look at these verses, and this is where I get this concept of the sin spectrum. We have the, the red side, the really bad side. You know, your adultery, homosexuality, fornication, murder, um, you know, the bad sins that all of us can agree, yep, we got to get rid of that. None of that should be part of our life. But then as we work down the spectrum, we get to this green side. Lying, gossiping, slander. Not that we want sin to be part of our lives. Not that we're looking for ways for sin to be part of our lives. But we're more okay with those aspects of sin to be around I find it ironic that we've been justified from our sin, and yet there are times we justify sin back into our lives. Now, I know it's kind of more of a, on a joke or a more of a lighthearted kind of example, but maybe you've been in these times, maybe you haven't, but you know the, the good stereotypical example of the prayer meeting where it's like, you know, Lord, I pray for my, my neighbor, Bob Joe, that, you know, he would stop having that affair with a lady down the street. And, you, you know, I'm spiritually justifying the fact that I'm praying for my neighbor, but I'm also gossiping at the same time. It's still sin. It's still sin. And I look at this spectrum going, okay, why do we live in a way where we're okay with some sin, but there are other sins that we can't even fathom bringing into our lives. But see, God looks at it all the same. Sin is sin in his eyes. You could tell a white lie or you could murder someone, and in his eyes, they're the exact same. But yet we have this, this spectrum of, I'm more okay with this, these lists of sins, but I'm not okay with these. And here in Colossians, it says, put it all off. These things, we're talking about our eternal lives here. I'm not saying that if you do these things, you're losing your salvation. I'm not saying that, so don't, don't, don't put that into this. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is, how are you living now that has an impact on eternity? Are you living in a way now that, if, that reflects your eternal salvation? More so, what are you willing to do now in this temporal life to magnify the eternal blessing that we have. What are the open doors of sin in your life that you need to close and cut off? Not because you want to be some self-righteous, high and mighty, I'm the best Christian who's arrived in the world, but no, I just don't want sin to be in my life. Maybe some of you need to go back to the old school flip phones. They don't have access to things just at thumb value all the time. Maybe you're sitting at home and maybe that, that ethernet cord needs to be cut. Not so that you're making a, a bold statement of I'm so awesome, look at what I'm doing. No, you're cutting sin out of your life. Maybe some of you need to go into your cabinets and take all those bottles and just pour them down the sink. 
Who cares how much money they were, it was to buy? Is it worth your spiritual life? Is it worth your spiritual investment into what the Lord has called you to be? You can only really answer that. We have to conquer our flesh before our flesh conquers us. These men, these Israelites, they were be about to begin a, the greatest spiritual war, war of all time, the greatest religious war of all time. They had to be cut, the flesh had to be removed so that they could be a marked people. I forget who said it. I believe it might be Moody again. I really like him. I believe he said, though, out of 100 men, 99 will read the man and one will read the Bible. So if people are reading you, they're looking at your life and they're reading your life, what are they reading? Are they reading the tales of, of an amazing, glorious, heavenly father who has reached down and saved the loss? Or are they reading a book that looks like the rest of the population of the world? We are a set-apart people. We are a chosen generation. As he was hanging on that cross, he, he already had you in his heart. He already had you in his mind. And if he was willing to go to that extent for you, how far are you willing to go for him? These men, Joshua had to sit there and circumcise these men as a, as a reflection, as, a, as an outward expression of what they were desiring on the inside. Lord, I want to be yours. I want people to see that I'm yours. I want to live in a way that reflects that I'm yours. So the flesh had to be removed. We need to stop looking at life as a sin spectrum. I'm okay with these things and I'm not okay with these things. God's not okay with any of it. So we shouldn't be either. And we shouldn't find ways to excuse sin back into our lives. If he's removed it, keep it out. Please, keep it out. Verses 10 through 12 say this. Now the children of Israel camped at Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. They're right in front of the city here. We talked about this before back in chapter 2. Those people up on the wall, they see these 2 to 3 million people come to the, the, the banks of the Jordan. The Jordan's at flood stage. They're probably like, all right, we got some time. They got to build bridges. They got to get some boats built. It's going to take some time, a few weeks, maybe a couple months for them to get everyone across. They're freaking out because there's this cloud and this pillar of fire that's over there, but it'll take some time for those people to get across. And then all of a sudden, the waters dry up, and they come walking right across, and all of a sudden, they're like, whoa, you guys see this? You guys see what's going on? They're here. They're now at the doorstep. They're in the plains of Jericho. They just had their flesh removed, and now they're having a feast. I don't know about you, but if I'm about ready to go into battle, the last thing I want to do is carbo load and have a big steak and potatoes meal. I want to have something lean. I want to have something that's going to give me the energy and go out to fight, not a big meal. Well, they're going to have a feast. Verse 11, And they ate the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and, and parched grain on the very same day. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land. And the children of Israel no longer had manna, 
but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. Philippians 3 tells us that we are to forget the things that are behind us. For most areas of our life, I'll say that's great counsel, but there are a few things that we do need to remember. In his farewell address, in his, his goodbye statements to the nation, Moses repeatedly commanded the Jews to remember that they were once slaves in Egypt and that the Lord had delivered them and made them his own people. This great truth is embodied in the annual Passover feast. They were never to forget that they were a redeemed people, that they were set free by the blood of the Lamb. And so they kept the Passover. Obviously, the original Passover itself can never be repeated, but there was power in the remembrance of it. They, will always, they were to always live remembering that they were a people delivered, delivered and remembering God's work of deliverance. In the same way, we are to be in constant remembrance of our redemption and live our lives in the shadow of the cross. Forty years before, Israel had celebrated the Passover on the night of their deliverance from Egypt. They also celebrated Passover at Mount Sinai before leaving for Kadesh Barnea. That's in Numbers 9. But there's no biblical evidence that they celebrated the Passover any time during the, the, the years wandering in the wilderness. The fact that the new generation wasn't circumcised prevented them from participating, and God had temporarily susp suspended that covenant that he had with his people. One act of unbelief at Kadesh Barnea had cost Israel dearly. The Passover was followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For a week, the Jews avoided leaven, yeast, and they ate unleavened bread. When Israel entered Canaan, it was time for the barley harvest. Grain was available. No doubt the inhabitants of the land had left grain behind when they fled to Jericho for safety. Thus, grain was available. The Lord had prepared a table for his people in the presence of their enemies. It's like Psalm 23 right in front of us, isn't it? says that the manna had ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land. When the people were, ate, were able to provide for themselves from the produce of Canaan, God stopped the manna. He didn't want them to get lazy, but he wanted them to enter into a new partnership of trust with him. Manna occupied such a low place that every Israelite, when he stepped out of his tent in the morning, had to do one of two things. He either had to gather the manna or he had to trample all over it. And this is exactly the place which our Lord has taken us in his infinite love and grace. And sometimes we need to kind of sit and think for a minute and ask ourselves a question. Are we trampling on his loving kindness? Are we trampling on his provision? Or have we received him as our blessed, adorable Savior? Are we opening up the doors of our homes? Are we opening up the doors of our hearts every morning and just kind of going, yep, I, I know what you did, God, I know. You died for me, you love me, move on with life. Are we taking that moment of going, hold on a second. You died for me. You redeemed me. You restored me. You saved me. And gather up that blessing. Gather up that provision and live off of that abundance and not just ignoring it and moving on throughout our day. 
you had to trust God to bring the manna every day. But you also had to trust that his provision wasn't just tied to manna, that he could provide in other ways. On the day after the Passover, the manna ceased, thus ending a 40-year miracle. I would love to see a miracle of God today that lasts 40 years. I would love this world to see a miracle of God that lasts the next four decades. It says that that year they ate the food of the land of Canaan. God will always provide. But he is perfectly free to change the source of his provision. We need to trust in him, not in his manner of provision. Because when he changes the manner of provision, if we're trusting in that, then we'll end up stumbling, we'll end up falling, we'll end up getting so tied up in the manner or the, the means of provision that we're not looking to him. The manna was the food for the wilderness. But when the people crossed over the Jordan and entered into their inheritance, the manna ceased. And they began to feed upon the fruit of the land that they were promised. The city of Gilgal will become kind of a beachhead or kind of become their headquarters of an encampment for Israel in their conquest of Canaan. They will return there after battle and they will go back remembering, finding strength in the remembrance of the memorial of the stones, understanding what this, this hill of foreskins was, their obedience and their redemption. It is very, very good for us all to have a place like Gilgal in our lives. It's a place where we first come to into God's promises, a place of memorial, of remembrance, a place of obedience, a place of redemption, a place that we can look back and go, that was the place in my life that everything changed. That was the moment, that was the event, that's what took place when everything else changed. And from there, his blessings grew. It is good to have a place like that in all of our lives. Too many professed Christians contradict their profession of faith by exhibiting an appetite for what belongs in their past life. Too much or too often we look back and go, man, some of that was really good. And I wonder if there's a way I can include that in my life today. And God is saying, no, 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 I saved you from that. I separated you from that. Don't go back to that anymore. Don't desire that anymore. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on those things, not on things of the earth. That's at the beginning of Colossians. We've already read in chapter 3, verses now 5 through 11. That's the first verse. Set your mind on those things. The things above, the things of heaven. Don't look to the things of the earth. Nothing here can sustain you or satisfy you like he can. The last three verses are, are some of my favorite in this because there's, a, re, there's a, a reassurance or a reaffirming of the Lord's presence. And, and there's one thing I can tell you, knowing and being reminded of his presence, man, that's key to so much in all of our lives. So verses 13 to 15 say this, And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? <laughs> and I love this. So what does the guy say? No. Nah. 
But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Joshua had read in the book of the law what Moses had said to the Lord after Israel had made the golden calf. He said, if, in your presence, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. The Lord had promised to be with Joshua just as he had promised to be with Moses. And now he was being reaffirmed of that promise in a very personal way. Just like his predecessor, Moses, Joshua was refusing to move until he was sure the Lord's presence was with him. Behold, a man stood opposite him with a sword drawn. Joshua boldly approaches this, this mysterious man with a drawn sword. As a shepherd over God's people, he had a responsibility to see if this man was friend or foe. Joshua puts a logical question. Are you for us? Are you against us? Are you for us? Are you for our enemies? It was the wrong question. The question wasn't if the Lord was on Joshua's side, but the question should have been, was Joshua on the Lord's side? And he announces himself as the commander of the army of the Lord. This is God himself pulling rank on Joshua, who was a, himself a great military leader. But he was not the commander-in-chief. We know that this man standing before Joshua was God, was Jehovah. You could say that the title, Commander of the Army of the Lord, could maybe apply to an angel. But Joshua's falling down and worshiping is inconsistent with angels. Angels never receive worship. The army of the Lord is, is kind of, it has the implication that the armies are an angelic army. It's a spiritual army. So this person is someone who commands angels. As well, Joshua refers to this person as my Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh. But if you look, most importantly, the command to remove his sandals, which should point you back to Moses at the burning bush, was very clear proof that the man standing before Joshua was the same man who spoke from that burning bush. It must have been a, such a great encouragement to Joshua to realize that he was not alone. There is a loneliness to leadership. Sometimes it can be disturbing and even depressing as you realize how much your decisions affect the lives of others. Harry Truman would say this, to be president of the United States is to be lonely. Very lonely at times of great decisions. Joshua must have been feeling some of that loneliness. So God in his promise to be with him shows up to encourage him. I love the courage that Joshua displayed as he confronted the stranger. But I love more so his response of worship, of humility, as he falls to his face and he worships. 
And he says, what does the Lord say to his servants? Watchman Nee, he's a great Chinese Bible teacher, he said this, not until we take the place of a servant can he take his place as Lord. Sometimes we just need to fall to our face, worship the commander of the army of the Lord and say, what do you ask of your servant? This goes back to the removal, to the, the, the conquering of the flesh. Lord, what's going on in me right now? Is there something going on in me that you need to cut out? Is there something we need to work on right now? The book of Malachi talks a lot about the refiner's fires, about making us as precious jewels. And the process of refinement is not a fun, it's not a comfortable process. Those fires get turned up, the dross comes up, the, the, the junk in our life comes up, it has to be scraped away, and then the temperature continues to be increased. It's definitely not comfortable, but it's very worth it to become as pure as we possibly can in the hands and in the eyes and in the outflow of our Heavenly Father. First Corinthians 10.31 says this, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That is the blanket statement for all of our lives. In anything and everything you're doing, whether it's drinking something, eating something, or just doing something, God better be glorified in it. And if he's not, we shouldn't be doing it. Pastor Jim recently has talked about hyper-grace. I shouldn't have this drink, but you know, it's okay. There's grace. You know, I really shouldn't say this, but it's okay. There's grace. You know, I, I shouldn't pick up my phone and go on that website right now, but it's, there's grace. There's grace. That's wrong. That's not grace. That's legalism. That's abuse of grace. All that we should be doing, we should be doing to the glory of God. And we see this, this amazing, significant sequence of events. There's humble worship, and then there's a holy walk, and then there's the warfare afterwards. There's humble worship. And then there's a, way, a holy walk, a holy life that is lived out at that worship. And once we are humbled and once we are holy in our life, then we can go and fight. But it's a time of preparation. It's a time of conquering our flesh so that we are not conquered by it. Before Israel could conquer anything in the promised land, they had to be conquered by God. And Joshua's total submission shows that they are indeed conquered by him. And this is the missing element in a life of victory for many Christians. They have either not been or they are not continually conquered by God. We have to conquer our flesh before we are conquered by it. And as our flesh is conquered, then we can be conquered by the Lord for His purposes, for His glorification. For our continual sanctification or setting ourselves apart from the world. Gilgal is an uncomfortable chapter. It's not fun to read these men being circumcised. 
but I'd almost rather go through this rite or this, this, this walk, this, this act of circumcision than allowing sin to dwell in my heart. So truly, I challenge you to not ask. What needs to be cut out of your life? What do you need to take a flint knife to and, and, and remove and cast aside as a remembrance, as a reminder, you are a set-apart set person. You are a set-apart people. Surgery is uncomfortable, but it's completely necessary at times. And there are many times that we need to allow this word to become a scalpel in the hand of our Heavenly Father, and with the delicate touch and precision of a surgeon, go in and remove the dross, remove that scar tissue, remove the sin of our lives. Well, let's pray.